Here begins The Pathfinder. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Pathfinder, or The Inland Sea, by James Fenimore Cooper. Preface The plan of this tale suggested itself to the writer many years since, though the details are altogether of recent invention. The idea of associating seamen and savages in incidents that might be supposed characteristic of the Great Lakes Having been mentioned to a publisher, the latter obtained something like a pledge from the author to carry out the design at some future day, which pledge is now tardily and imperfectly redeemed. The reader may recognize an old friend under new circumstances in the principal character of this legend. If the exhibition made of this old acquaintance, in the novel circumstances in which he now appears, should be found not to lessen his favor with the public, it will be a source of extreme gratification to the writer, since he has an interest in the individual in question that falls little short of reality. It is not an easy task, however, to introduce the same character in four separate works, and to maintain the peculiarities that are indispensable to identity, without incurring a risk of fatiguing the reader with sameness, and the present experiment has been so long delayed quite as much from doubts of its success as from any other cause. In this, as in every other undertaking, it must be the end that will crown the work. The Indian character has so little variety that it has been my object to avoid dwelling on it too much on the present occasion. Its association with a sailor, too, it is feared, will be found to have more novelty than interest. It may strike the novice as an anachronism to place vessels on the Ontario in the middle of the eighteenth century, but in this particular facts will fully bear out all the license of the fiction. Although the precise vessels mentioned in these pages may never have existed on that water, or anywhere else, others so nearly resembling them are known to have navigated that inland sea, even at a period much earlier than the one just mentioned, as to form a sufficient authority for their introduction into a work of fiction. It is a fact not generally remembered, however well known it may be, that there are isolated spots along the line of the Great Lakes that date as settlements as far back as many of the older American towns, and which were the seats of a species of civilization long before the greater portion of even the older states was rescued from the wilderness. Ontario in our own times has been the scene of important naval evolutions. Fleets have maneuvered on those waters which, half a century ago, were as deserted as waters well can be and the day is not distant when the whole of that vast range of lakes will become the seat of empire, and fraught with all the interests of human society. Even though it be in a work of fiction, of what that vast region so lately was, may help to make up the sum of knowledge by which alone a just appreciation can be formed, of the wonderful means by which Providence is clearing the way for the advancement of civilization across the whole American continent." Beginning of the Pathfinder Chapter 1 The turf shall be my fragrant shrine, My temple, Lord, that arch of thine, My censer's breath the mountain airs, And silent thoughts my only prayers. 
verse attributed to Moore. The sublimity connected with vastness is familiar to every eye. The most abstruse, the most far-reaching, perhaps the most chastened of the poet's thoughts, crowd on the imagination as he gazes into the depths of the illimitable void. The expanse of the ocean is seldom seen by the novice with indifference, and the mind, even in the obscurity of night, finds a parallel to that grandeur which seems inseparable from images that the senses cannot compass. With feelings akin to this admiration and awe, the offspring of sublimity, were the different characters with which the action of this tale must open, gazing on the scene before them. Four persons in all, two of each sex, they had managed to ascend a pile of trees that had been uptorn by a tempest to catch a view of the objects that surrounded them. It is still the practice of the country to call these spots windrows. By letting in the light of heaven upon the dark and damp recesses of the wood, they form a sort of oasis in the solemn obscurity of the virgin forests of America. The particular windrow of which we are writing lay on the brow of a gentle acclivity, and, though small, it had opened the way for an extensive view to those who might occupy its upper margin, a rare occurrence to the traveller in the woods. Philosophy has not yet determined the nature of the power that so often lays desolate spots of this description some ascribing it to the whirlwinds which produce water-spouts on the ocean, while others again impute it to sudden and violent passages of streams of the electric fluid. But the effects in the woods are familiar to all. On the upper margin of the opening, the viewless influence had piled tree on tree, in such a manner as had not only enabled the two males of the party to ascend to an elevation of some thirty feet above the level of the earth, but, with a little care and encouragement, to induce their more timid companions to accompany them. The vast trunks which had been broken and driven by the force of the gust lay blended like jack-straws, while their branches, still exhaling the fragrance of withering leaves, were interlaced in a manner to afford sufficient support to the hands. One tree had been completely uprooted, and its lower end, filled with earth, had been cast uppermost, in a way to supply a sort of staging for the four adventurers, when they had gained the desired distance from the ground. The reader is to anticipate none of the appliances of people of condition in the description of the personal appearances of the group in question. They were all wayfarers in the wilderness, and had they not been, neither their previous habits nor their actual social positions would have accustomed them to many of the luxuries of rank. Two of the party, indeed, a male and female, belonged to the native owners of the soil, being Indians of the well-known tribe of the Tuscaroras, while their companions were a man who bore about him the peculiarities of one who had passed his days on the ocean, and was, too, in a station little, if any, above that of a common mariner, and his female associate, who was a maiden of a class in no great degree superior to his own, though her youth, sweetness, and countenance, and a modest but spirited mien, lent that character of intellect and refinement which adds so much to the charm of beauty in the sex. On the present occasion her full blue eye reflected the feeling of sublimity that the scene excited, 
and her pleasant face was beaming with the pensive expression with which all deep emotions, even though they bring the most grateful pleasure, shadow the countenances of the ingenuous and thoughtful. And truly the scene was of a nature deeply to impress the imagination of the beholder. Towards the west, in which direction the faces of the party were turned, the eye ranged over an ocean of leaves, glorious and rich in the varied and lively verdure of a generous vegetation, and shaded by the luxuriant tints which belong to the forty-second degree of latitude. The elm with its graceful and weeping top, the rich varieties of the maple, most of the noble oaks of the American forest, with a broad-leaved linden known in the parlance of the country as the basswood, mingled their uppermost branches, forming one broad and seemingly interminable carpet of foliage which stretched away towards the setting sun, until it bounded the horizon by blending with the clouds, as the waves and the sky meet at the base of the vault of heaven. Here and there, by some accident of the tempests, or by a caprice of nature, a trifling opening amid these giant members of the forest permitted an inferior tree to struggle upward toward the light, and to lift its modest head nearly to a level with the surrounding surface of verdure. Of this class were the birch, a tree of some account in regions less favoured, the quivering aspen, various generous nutwoods, and divers others which resembled the ignoble and vulgar thrown by circumstances into the presence of the stately and great. Here and there, too, the tall, straight trunk of the pine pierced the vast field, rising high above it, like some grand monument reared by art on a plain of leaves. It was the vastness of the view, the nearly unbroken surface of verdure, that contained the principle of grandeur. The beauty was to be traced in the delicate tints, relieved by graduations of light and shade, while the solemn repose induced the feeling allied to awe. "'Uncle,' said the wandering but pleased girl, addressing her male companion, whose arm she rather touched than leaned upon, to steady her own light but firm footing, "'this is like a view of the ocean you so much love.' "'So much for ignorance and a girl's fancy, Magnet.' a term of affection the sailor often used in allusion to his niece's personal attractions. No one but a child would think of likening this handful of leaves to a look at the real Atlantic. You might seize all these tree-tops to Neptune's jacket, and they would make no more than a nosegay for his bosom. More fanciful than true, I think, uncle. Look thither. It must be miles on miles, and yet we see nothing but leaves— what could one behold if looking at the ocean? More, returned the uncle, giving an impatient gesture with the elbow the other touched, for his arms were crossed and the hands were thrust into the bosom of a vest of red cloth, a fashion of the times. More, Magnet, say rather what less. Where are your combing seas, your blue water, your rollers, your breakers, your whales or your water spouts? and your endless motion in this bit of a forest, child. And where are your tree-tops, your solemn silence, your fragrant leaves, and your beautiful green, uncle, on the ocean? Tut, Magnet, if you understood the thing, you would know that green water is a sailor's bane. He scarcely relishes a greenhorn less. 
But green trees are a different thing. Hist! That sound is the air breathing among the leaves. You should hear a nor'wester breathe, girl, if you fancy wind aloft. Now, where are your gales and hurricanes and trades and levanters and such like incidents in this bit of a forest? And what fishes have you swimming beneath yon tame surface? That there have been tempests here, these signs around us plainly show, and beasts, if not fishes, are beneath those leaves. I do not know that, returned the uncle with the sailor's dogmatism. They told us many stories at Albany of the wild animals we should fall in with, and yet we have seen nothing to frighten a seal. I doubt if any of your inland animals will compare with a low-latitude shark. See, exclaimed the niece, who was more occupied with the sublimity and beauty of the boundless wood than with her uncle's arguments. Yonder is a smoke curling over the tops of the trees. Can it come from a house? Aye, aye, there is a look of humanity in that smoke, returned the old seaman, which is worth a thousand trees. I must show it to Arrowhead, who may be running past a port without knowing it. It is probable there is a caboose where there is a smoke. As he concluded, the uncle drew a hand from his bosom, touched the male Indian, who was standing near him, lightly on the shoulder, and pointed out a thin line of vapour which was stealing slowly out of the wilderness of leaves, at a distance of about a mile, and was diffusing itself in almost imperceptible threads of humidity in the quivering atmosphere. The Tuscarora was one of those noble-looking warriors oftener met with among the aborigines of this continent a century since than to-day, and while he had mingled sufficiently with the colonists to be familiar with their habits and even with their language, he had lost little, if any, of the wild grandeur and simple dignity of a chief. Between him and the old seaman the intercourse had been friendly, but distant, for the Indian had been too much accustomed to mingle with the officers of the different military posts he had frequented, not to understand that his present companion was only a subordinate. So imposing, indeed, had been the quiet superiority of the Tuscarora's reserve, that Charles Cap, for so was the seaman named, in his most dogmatical or facetious moments, had not ventured on familiarity in an intercourse which had now lasted more than a week. The sight of the curling smoke, however, had struck the latter like the sudden appearance of a sail at sea, and for the first time since they met he ventured to touch the warrior, as has been related. The quick eye of the Tuscarora instantly caught a sight of the smoke, and for full a minute he stood, slightly raised on tiptoe, with distended nostrils, like the buck that scents a taint in the air, and a gaze as riveted as that of the trained pointer while he waits his master's aim. Then, falling back on his feet, a low exclamation, in the soft tones that form so singular a contrast to the harsher cries in the Indian warrior's voice, was barely audible, otherwise he was undisturbed. His countenance was calm, and his quick, dark, eagle eye moved over the leafy panorama, as if to take in at a glance every circumstance that might enlighten his mind. That the long journey they had attempted to make through a broad belt of wilderness was necessarily attended with danger, both uncle and niece well knew, though neither could at once determine whether the sign that others were in their vicinity 
was the harbinger of good or evil. "'There must be a Nidas or Tuscaroras near us, Arrowhead,' said Cap, addressing his Indian companion by his conventional English name. "'Will it not be well to join company with them and get a comfortable berth for the night in their wigwam?' "'No wigwam there,' Arrowhead returned in his unmoved manner. "'Too much tree.' "'But Indians must be there, perhaps some old messmates of your own, Master Arrowhead.' "'No Tuscarora, no Oneida, no Mohawk. Pale face fire.' "'The devil it is! Well, Magnet, this surpasses a seaman's philosophy. We old sea-dogs can tell a lubber's nest from a mate's hammock, but I do not think the oldest admiral in His Majesty's fleet can tell a king's smoke from a collier's.' The idea that human beings were in their vicinity, in that ocean of wilderness, had deepened the flush on the blooming cheek and brightened the eye of the fair creature at his side, but she soon turned with a look of surprise to her relative, and said hesitatingly, for both had often admired the Tuscarora's knowledge, or, we might almost say, instinct, "'A pale face is fire. Surely, uncle, he cannot know that.' Ten days since, child, I would have sworn to it, but now I hardly know what to believe. May I take the liberty of asking, Arrowhead, why you fancy that smoke now, a pale face's smoke, and not a redskin's? Wet wood, returned the warrior, with the calmness with which the pedagogue might point out an arithmetical demonstration to his puzzled pupil. Much wet, much smoke, much water, black smoke. "'But begging your pardon, Master Arrowhead, the smoke is not black, nor is there much of it. To my eye, now, it is as light and fanciful a smoke as ever rose from a captain's tea-kettle, when nothing was left to make the fire but a few chips from the dunnage.' "'Too much water,' returned Arrowhead, with a slight nod of the head. "'Tuscarora, too cunning to make fire with water. Paleface, too much book, and burn anything. Much book, little no.' "'Well, that's reasonable, I allow,' said Cap, who was no devotee of learning. "'He means that as a hit at your reading, Magnet, for the chief has sensible notions of things in his own way. How far now, Arrowhead, do you make us, by your calculation, from the bit of a pond that you call the Great Lake, and towards which we have been so many days shaping our course?' The Tuscarora looked at the seaman with quiet superiority as he answered— Ontario, like heaven, one sun, and the great traveller will know it. Well, I have been a great traveller, I cannot deny, but of all my voyages this has been the longest, the least profitable, and the farthest inland. If this body of fresh water is so nigh, Arrowhead, and so large, one might think a pair of good eyes would find it out, for apparently everything within thirty miles is to be seen from this lookout. "'Look,' said Arrowhead, stretching an arm before him with quiet grace. "'Ontario.' "'Uncle, you are accustomed to cry land-ho, but not water-ho, and you do not see it,' cried the niece, laughing, as girls will laugh at their own idle conceits. "'How now, Magnet? Dost suppose that I shouldn't know my native element if it were in sight?' "'But Ontario is not your native element, dear uncle.' for you come from the salt water, while this is fresh. 
That might make some difference to your young mariner, but none to the old one. I should know water, child, were I to see it in China. Ontario, repeated Arrowhead, with emphasis, again stretching his hand towards the northwest. Cap looked at the Tescarora for the first time since their acquaintance, with something like an air of contempt, though he did not fail to follow the direction of the chief's eye and arm, both of which were directed towards a vacant point in the heavens, a short distance above the plain of leaves. Ay, ay, this is as much as I expected when I left the coast in search of a fresh-water pond, resumed Cap, shrugging his shoulders like one whose mind was made up, and who thought no more need be said. Ontario may be there, or for that matter it may be in my pocket. Well, I suppose there will be room enough when we reach it to work our canoe. But Arrowhead, if there be pale faces in our neighborhood, I confess I should like to get within hail of them. The Tuscarora now gave a quiet inclination of his head, and the whole party descended from the roots of the uptorn tree in silence. When they reached the ground, Arrowhead intimated his intention to go towards the fire, and ascertain who had lighted it, while he advised his wife and the two others to return to a canoe, which they had left in the adjacent stream, and await his return. Why, chief, this might do on soundings, and in an offing where one knew the channel, returned old Cap. But in an unknown region like this, I think it unsafe to trust the pilot alone too far from the ship. So, with your leave, we will not part company. "'What my brother want?' asked the Indian gravely, though without taking offence at a distrust that was sufficiently plain. "'Your company, Master Arrowhead, and no more. I will go with you and speak these strangers.' The Tuscarora assented without difficulty, and again he directed his patient and submissive little wife, who seldom turned her full, rich black eye on him but to express equally her respect, her dread, and her love, to proceed to the boat. But here Magnet raised a difficulty. Although spirited, and of unusual energy under circumstances of trial, she was but woman, and the idea of being entirely deserted by her two male protectors, in the midst of a wilderness that her senses had just told her was seemingly illimitable, became so keenly painful that she expressed a wish to accompany her uncle. "'The exercise will be a relief, dear sir, after sitting too long in the canoe,' she added, as the rich blood slowly returned to a cheek that had paled, in spite of her efforts to be calm. "'And there may be females with the strangers.' "'Come, then, child, it is but a cable's length, and we shall return an hour before the sun sets.' With this permission, the girl, whose real name was Mabel Dunham, prepared to be of the party, while the Dew of June, as the wife of Arrowhead was called, passively went her way towards the canoe, too much accustomed to obedience, solitude, and the gloom of the forest to feel apprehension. The three who remained in the windrow now picked their way around its tangled maze, and gained the margin of the woods. A few glances of the eye sufficed for Arrowhead, but old Cap deliberately set the smoke by a pocket-compass, before he trusted himself within the shadows of the trees. "'This steering by the nose, Magnet, may do well enough for an Indian, but your thoroughbred knows the virtue of the needle,' said the uncle, 
as he trudged at the heels of the light-stepping Tuscarora. "'America would never have been discovered, take my word for it, if Columbus had been nothing but nostrils. Friend Arrowhead, didst ever see a machine like this?' The Indian turned, cast a glance at the compass, which Cap held in a way to direct his course, and gravely answered, "'A pale-face eye. The Tuscarora see in his head. The salt water,' for so the Indian styled his companion, "'all eye now, no tongue.' "'He means, uncle, that we had needs be silent. Perhaps he distrusts the persons we are about to meet.' Aye, tis an Indian's fashion of going to quarters. You perceive he has examined the priming of his rifle, and it may be as well if I look to that of my own pistols. Without betraying alarm at these preparations, to which she had become accustomed by her long journey in the wilderness, Mabel followed with a step as elastic as that of the Indian, keeping close in the rear of her companions. For the first half-mile no other caution beyond a rigid silence was observed, but as the party drew nearer to the spot where the fire was known to be, much greater care became necessary. The forest, as usual, had little to intercept the view below the branches but the tall, straight trunks of trees. Everything belonging to vegetation had struggled towards the light, and beneath the leafy canopy one walked, as it might be, through a vast natural vault, upheld by myriads of rustic columns. These columns, or trees, however, often served to conceal the adventurer, the hunter, or the foe, and as Arrowhead swiftly approached the spot where his practised and unerring senses told him the strangers ought to be, his footstep gradually became lighter, his eye more vigilant, and his person was more carefully concealed. "'See, Saltwater,' said he, exulting, pointing through the vista of trees, Pale-face fire! By the Lord, the fellow is right, muttered Cap. There they are, sure enough, and eating their grub as quietly as if they were in the cabin of a three-decker. Arrowhead is but half right, whispered Mabel, for there are two Indians and only one white man. Pale-faces, said the Tuscarora, holding up two fingers, red man, holding up one. Well, rejoined Cap, it is hard to say which is right and which is wrong. One is entirely white, and a fine comely lad he is, with an air of respectability about him. One is a redskin as plain as paint, and nature can make him, but the third chap is half-rigged, being neither brig nor schooner. Pale faces, repeated Arrowhead, again raising two fingers, red man, showing but one. He must be right, uncle, for his eye seems never to fail. But it is now urgent to know whether we meet as friends or foes. They may be French. One hail will soon satisfy us on that head, returned Cap. Stand you behind the tree, Magnet, lest the knaves take it into their heads to fire a broadside without a parley, and I will soon learn what colours they sail under. The uncle had placed his two hands to his mouth to form a trumpet, and was about to give the promised hail, when a rapid movement from the hand of Arrowhead defeated the intention by deranging the instrument. "'Red man Mohican,' said the Tuscarora. "'Good. Pale faces, Yengeese.' "'These are heavenly tidings,' 
murmured Mabel, who little relished the prospect of a deadly fray in that remote wilderness. Let us approach at once, dear uncle, and proclaim ourselves friends. Good, said the Tuscarora. Red man cool, and no. Pale face hurried, and fire. Let the squaw go. What? said Cap, in astonishment. Send little Magnet ahead as a lookout, while two lovers, like you and me, lie to to see what sort of a landfall she will make? If I do, I— It is wisest, uncle, interrupted the generous girl, and I have no fear. No Christian, seeing a woman approach alone, would fire upon her, and my presence would be a pledge of peace. Let me go forward, as Arrowhead wishes, and all will be well. We are as yet unseen, and the surprise of the strangers will not partake of alarm. Good, returned Arrowhead, who did not conceal his approbation of Mabel's spirit. It has an unseamanlike look, answered Cap, but being in the woods, no one will know it. If you think, Mabel, uncle, I know, there is no cause to fear for me, and you are always nigh to protect me. "'Well, take one of the pistols, then—' "'Nay, I had better rely on my youth and feebleness,' said the girl, smiling, while her colour heightened under her feelings. "'Among Christian men a woman's best guard is her claim to their protection. I know nothing of arms, and wish to live in ignorance of them.' The uncle desisted, and after receiving a few cautious instructions from the Tuscarora, Mabel rallied all her spirit— and advanced alone towards the group seated near the fire. Although the heart of the girl beat quick, her step was firm, and her movements, seemingly, were without reluctance. A death-like silence reigned in the forest, for they towards whom she approached were too much occupied in appeasing their hunger to avert their looks for an instant from the important business in which they were all engaged. When Mabel, however, had got within a hundred feet of the fire, she trod upon a dried stick, and the trifling noise produced by her light footstep caused the Mohican, as Arrowhead had pronounced the Indian to be, and his companion, whose character had been thought so equivocal, to rise to their feet, as quick as thought. Both glanced at the rifles that leaned against a tree, and then each stood without stretching out an arm, as his eyes fell on the form of the girl. The Indian uttered a few words to his companion, and resumed his seat and his meal as calmly as if no interruption had occurred. On the contrary, the white man left the fire and came forward to meet Mabel. The latter saw, as the stranger approached, that she was about to be addressed by one of her own colour, though his dress was so strange a mixture of the habits of the two races that it required a near look to be certain of the fact. He was of middle age, but there was an open honesty, a total absence of guile in his face, which otherwise would not have been thought handsome, that at once assured Magnet she was in no danger. Still she paused. "'Fear nothing, young woman,' said the hunter, for such his attire would indicate him to be. "'You have met Christian men in the wilderness, and such as know how to treat all kindly who are disposed to peace and justice.' I am a man well known in all these parts, and perhaps one of my names may have reached your ears. By the Frenchers and the Redskins on the other side of the big lakes I am called La Longue Carabine. By the Mohicans, a just-minded and upright tribe, what is left of them, Hawkeye. While the troops and rangers along this side of the water call me 
pathfinder, inasmuch as I have never been known to miss one end of the trail, when there was a Mingo, or a friend who stood in need of me, at the other. This was not uttered boastfully, but with the honest confidence of one who well knew that by whatever name others might have heard of him, who had no reason to blush at the reports. The effect on Mabel was instantaneous. The moment she heard the last sobriquet, she clasped her hands eagerly and repeated the word, Pathfinder. So they call me, young woman, and many a great lord has got a title that he did not half so well merit. Though, if truth be said, I rather pride myself in finding my way where there is no path, than in finding it where there is. But the regular troops are by no means particular, and half the time they don't know the difference between a trail and a path, though one is a matter for the eye, while the other is little more than scent. "'Then you are the friend my father promised to send to meet us?' "'If you are Sergeant Dunham's daughter, the great prophet of the Delawares never uttered more truth.' "'I am Mabel, and yonder, hid by the trees, are my uncle, whose name is Cap, and a Tuscarora called Arrowhead. "'We did not hope to meet you until we had nearly reached the shores of the lake.' "'I wish a juster-minded Indian had been your guide,' said Pathfinder." for I am no lover of the Tuscaroras, who have travelled too far from the graves of their fathers always to remember the great spirit. And Arrowhead is an ambitious chief. Is the Dew of June with him? His wife accompanies us, and a humble and mild creature she is. Ay, and true-hearted, which is more than any who know him will say of Arrowhead. Well, we must take the fare that Providence bestows— while we follow the trail of life. I suppose worse guides might have been found than the Tuscarora, though he has too much Mingo blood for one who consorts altogether with the Delawares. "'It is, then, perhaps fortunate we have met,' said Mabel. "'It is not misfortunate, at any rate, for I promised the sergeant I would see his child safe to the garrison, though I died for it. We expected to meet you before you reached the falls, where we have left our own canoe.' while we thought it might do no harm to come up a few miles, in order to be of service if wanted. It is lucky we did, for I doubt if Arrowhead be the man to shoot the current. Here comes my uncle and the Tuscarora, and our parties can now join. As Mabel concluded, Cap and Arrowhead, who saw that the conference was amicable, drew nigh, and a few words sufficed to let them know as much as the girl herself had learned from the strangers. As soon as this was done, the party proceeded towards the two who still remained near the fire. End of chapter 1